A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Stop. <laughs> Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance a ho. Later in the show, we'll hear about the smart boy in Wellington Harbour. And no, I don't mean a small human boy, I mean a sophisticated piece of floating technology. But first, wasps. It's that time of year when nasty introduced wasps are making a nuisance of themselves. But tonight, we're going to hear about the good wasps. Yep, you heard that right. The good wasps. These are the kind of wasps that fly under most people's radar, but not Tom Saunders. He's a PhD student at the University of Auckland, but his fascination with these insects started with research for his master's degree. So right now we're standing at the New Zealand Arthropod Collection, which is the largest insect collection in New Zealand, and it's housed at Landcare Research in Auckland. And we can see a lot of wooden drawers with glass lids on them, which contain thousands of specimens of pinned insects. I feel like we should go for a walk because we're standing in the middle of the room. Let's just walk this way. Okay. And it's just to get a sense of how long it is. So one, two, three, four, five rows, double-sided rows, like a library, but a library full of pinned insects. So let's go back down to the middle of the room where your species of interest are. But as we go down, we've got hemiptera, bugs, yep, the bugs, cicadas. The bugs. So this is just starting the hymenoptera straight away, which is my area of interest. So hymenoptera are? Bees, ants and wasps. How and big is that group in New Zealand? In New Zealand, we've only got about less than 40 species of bees, and I think about the same number of ants. So the majority of the bees, ants and wasps in New Zealand are actually the wasps, and the majority of the wasps are parasitoid wasps. So people are quite familiar with the vespids, the yellow jackets, the stinging wasps, the ones that live in the colonies and paper wasps and all that sort of thing. Those are the ones that when I say to people I'm coming out to do a story with you about parasitic wasps, they all universally go, we hate wasps. Yeah, absolutely. And they're thinking of those introduced ones. Yeah, they they are. They are. So we've got like five species of introduced social wasps. And just those five species have tarnished the reputation of all wasps. But... The wasps I'm interested in are called parasitoid wasps, and they are actually far more diverse than the stinging wasps. There are loads more species of them. In New Zealand, we don't have any native stinging wasps, so all of our native wasps are actually parasitoid wasps. And how many species are we talking about? Well, the thing is is that we don't have an exact figure because we don't really know, but what we do know is that it's somewhere between two to 3,000 species. And we don't know just because we haven't looked well enough? Yeah, it's a combination of things, really. It's um, a lack of sort of sampling efforts, so a lack of studies that have actually gone out there, um, collected loads of parasitic wasps and just kind of figured out how many species there could be and how many species there, there actually are observed. Um, it's also the fact that there are very few trained taxonomists in New Zealand, so those are the people who um, describe, name, classify species. And I think it's a shame because these wasps are known to be really important everywhere that they exist. They're known to be what are called keystone species. 
And so keystone species are, are species that have a disproportionate impact on their ecosystem. So if you take them away, you notice their absence. And so the reason why parasitoid wasps are keystone species is because they have a very intimate association with their hosts. And in New Zealand, the hosts are generally moths and butterflies. And so, you know, you've got the start of the pyramid, which is the plant, and then you've got the moth, little moth larvae that lives on the plant. Otherwise known as a caterpillar. Otherwise known as a caterpillar. And then you've got the uh, wasp that attacks the moth larvae. So it's, it's quite an intimate link. And so for that reason as well, parasitoid wasps, because they're on that sort of outer link, they're quite extinction prone. They're quite sensitive to environmental changes. And for that reason, they may also be able to be used as a sort of indicator species as to what other diversity there is. Because if you see a parasitic wasp, you know that its host is around and its host's food plant is around. So straight away you've got information about two more species from that one. So it's quite cool. Can we have a look in one of these drawers that says Hymenoptera? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. If you'd asked me to say what are these things in this drawer, wasps would not have been the first thing that came to mind because some of them look almost like a large mosquito and some of them look like small spindly flies. So what is it that makes these guys wasps? So wasps have got two pairs of wings, which distinguish them from flies. They've only got one pair of wings and a reduced hind wing. In the parasitic wasps, they have uh, what's called an ovipositor, which is a a tube on the females that they use to lay their eggs. So they they either inject their egg into a caterpillar or they just kind of lay their egg onto a caterpillar or next to it. So that's the pointy sword-like thing that sticks out the end that people would probably go, oh, that's a stinger. A sting, yeah. People think it's a stinger. And so the the stinging wasps, the, the sort of annoying ones, they actually arose from the parasitic wasps. So this is kind of the ancestral condition. And so the, the stinging wasps kind of evolved. Their, their ovipositor sort of turned into a sting. So, so that's kind of how that works. But wasps have also got a sort of a narrow waist. Ah, oh, the, the traditional it. wasp waist. Yes, the wasp waist. They're also really cool, interesting creatures. Now, these all look very brown. Is that just because they're dried specimens? Uh, this is actually one genus. Well, two. But, but they're quite closely related genus. These ones uh, are all from my master's study, so these were all caught during my trapping. And trapping here in Auckland? Yeah, so it was kind of on the suburban fringe between the Waitakere Ranges and West Auckland. You don't have to go very far in New Zealand to find an amazing amount of biodiversity. And they call it, like, you know, it's called backyard biodiversity because you can, even if you put a trap out in your backyard in the, in the middle of, you know, suburban Auckland, you would trap all sorts of wasps like this. Maybe not as many species, but you would definitely get a really interesting mix and you would be able to have a look at all the different ones that there are. We were focusing mainly on two groups of parasitic wasps simply because they're the most well-known and they have the identification resources available. And so we caught about 87 species um, of those two groups, but only three or four were actually known to species level. And so the rest were, were undescribed. And so we had to compare them with all the specimens that, that we have here in the New Zealand arthropod collection to figure out you know, what species are what and what ones are different from, from what. And then we also used some um, DNA work to match up the males with the females to make sure that we got the right association there. So that was really interesting. They've got very long antennae. Am I right in thinking that that would be part of how they find those moth larvae? Yeah, so parasitoid wasps in general 
they hone in on their hosts based on chemicals that they sense in the environment. So they're called semiochemicals. And so what happens is the female will sort of uh, hone in on odours associated with either the host or the host plant from a long range. And then once it, once it finds a sort of like a, a habitat or an, an area of vegetation that matches uh, its, its host preferences, then it will start to carry out more of a localised search. So it will, you know, fly around the vegetation or walk around the leaves. And, and, and when they're doing that sort of thing, they sort of drum their antennae on the leaf surface and that helps them to pick up those volatile chemical cues. Oh, so they're not just waving them around in the breeze? No, no, no. They're sort of drumming them around, and then that helps them to figure out the direction that the odours might be travelling and coming from. It's kind of like a stereo sort of effect, so they can kind of figure out where their host might be. Yeah. And then they find a caterpillar? What happens? Yep. Many parasitic wasps are endoparasitoids, which means that, that, that they actually inject the egg into the body of the caterpillar. And then it's kind of one of those scenarios out of the... Ridley Scott alien films where the egg hatches inside the caterpillar and the little wasp larva feeds on the caterpillar's insides. Um, in most cases, it feeds selectively to keep the host alive for as long as possible to give it a nice cosy corpse to live in. And so then what happens is once the wasp is ready to, to form a little pupa, it'll pop out of the host normally, form a pupa, or, or stay inside and form a pupa. And then an adult wasp will emerge after it's completed its development and sort of go off to do the same thing. And these wasps have pretty specialised relationships with their prey, i.e. they will only target a particular species of moth? Yeah, so there's a bit of variation. There are some parasitoid wasps that are very host-specific and they will only target a single species of moth or whatever else they're interested in. And then there are other species that are more generalist and they might target species from you know a whole group, like they might target all stink bugs or all beetles from a certain group. Now you say there are tons and tons of undescribed species, but you have managed to describe one, haven't you? Yes, I described one with the help of my supervisor during my master's project. And the excellent thing about this species is that when you describe a species, mostly the genus name is already known, which is the first part. So for humans, Homo sapiens, Homo is the genus. So that part's normally already known. And so with this species, um, the genus was already known to be Lucius. So I thought, oh, reminded me of the, um, the Harry Potter character, Lucius Malfoy, um, because his blonde hair is quite similar to the, the colour of their, their bodies. And also, I started to think about how people have a really negative perception of wasps. And it's similar in, with the Harry Potter series, how you know everyone knows that Lucius Malfoy is this massive villain and everyone hates him. But then at the end of the series, he's kind of pardoned for his crimes because he, he breaks away from the Death Eaters and the, the sort of other evil wizards and sort of thing. So I thought I could maybe use that idea to hopefully generate some interest in parasitoid wasps and biodiversity and taxonomy and how important it is to describe species and, and give them names that... that people actually care about because if you don't care about something you're not going to want to conserve it so that was the whole idea behind it so would any of these native parasitoid wasps be of any use to me in my garden with things like cabbage white butterflies the thing is is that native parasitoids uh, have evolved here to target native species so if you have native species that are causing damage then absolutely they would they would target those. But there are also some useful exotic 
species, so species that have been sourced from overseas and deliberately uh, introduced here, and some of those target the, the common pests. There was a parasitoid wasp from Kazakhstan that was introduced to fight a pest in apple orchards, so it targets the larvae of a codling moth, and so it means that we don't have to use as many pesticides. But yeah, in terms of what you would be finding in your garden, probably not helping your veggie patch a whole lot, but in saying that, there would certainly be some species that would be targeting aphids or other things like that. In the case of the codling moth, it's a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the whole, the whole concept of biological control, which is uh, sort of using one living creature to battle another, is that if you have a pest that comes from overseas and establishes in an area that it hasn't evolved in, it probably won't have many natural enemies here in that, in that new range. And so the whole concept of, of biological control is if you can introduce the natural enemy to that, to that place, you can re-establish that link and then you can get some of that natural control that would normally be happening in the native range, but in the new range that's been invaded by that pest. And that's the area you're getting involved in for your PhD now? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So the, the, my PhD is um, just started really at Plum Food Research, and I'm working there with um, Gonzalo Avila. We're working on testing a, an Asian species of, of parasitoid wasp to see if it would be a good idea to release it in New Zealand should the brown marmorated stink bug establish here. So that's an insect that we're worried might end up here. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most unwanted pests uh, by MPI and, and industry groups because it has the potential to cause uh, massive damage. So it's just recently um, expanded its range. It's just kind of recently been found in Europe and um, the United States and North America. And, and it's caused a lot of damage there. I mean, in 2010 uh, in the United States, just for apples alone, it was 37 million US dollars of damage just for the apple crop in that one year. It's also disrupted hazelnut production in Georgia and Europe. And, you know, they're actually one of the, the biggest producers of hazelnuts in the world. So you're planning ahead. And what does that involve doing? Does that involve making sure that if you wanted to bring the parasitoid wasp here, it's not going to do something like the ferrets and go, why would I eat rabbits when I can eat flightless birds? Thank you very much. You don't want the, this parasitic wasp preying on other native things. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. That is the the main reason. And so, there's really been an evolution uh, in in the practice of biological control over the years. So, recently, you know, th- there has been um, a much greater emphasis placed on carrying out the proper work beforehand to make sure that there aren't going to be non-target impacts. That, that the species you're interested in isn't going to switch to a different host or or prey item, um, and to make sure that it's going to be as specific as possible to your target pest that you're interested in in suppressing. Thanks, Tom. That was Tom Saunders from the University of Auckland. His PhD project is part of the Better Border Biosecurity, or B3, science collaboration, researching new ways to stop new plant pests and diseases from entering New Zealand and establishing here, including the dreaded brown marmorated stink bug. Kate Fakaronga mai kwe kito tato au horihori kitareo erirangi o Aotearoa. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, if you like following Wellington weather, or perhaps you're a yachty or fisher wondering about sea conditions out on the harbour, you might like to check out the new data stream on Greater Wellington's website. 
It features real-time information from a smart boy that's been bobbing around in Wellington Harbour since July last year. Joe O'Callaghan from Niwa is the oceanographer behind REBO, which stands for Wellington Region Integrated Buoy Observations, and Claire Comwell is the coastal scientist at Greater Wellington Regional Council. Here's Claire. So we're lucky enough that the data from our uh, coastal monitoring buoy has just gone online on the Greater Wellington Council environmental monitoring page. So we're able to click on the icon, find our drop-down menu, click on where it says water temperature. Today it is about 17.5 degrees, so quite nice. The temperature data comes from Rebo, and so Rebo is a a real-time harbour buoy that was deployed in Wellington Harbour in July last year. And Rebo tells us about what the temperature, the salinity, the oxygen, the waves and the wind are doing in the harbour right now. The nice thing about these real-time data is that we don't have to go out in a boat, we don't have to wait for the weather or the right time or the right people to go out and find out what's happening. We can sit at our computers and collect this data in real time. Whereabouts in the harbour, is that clear? It's about two kilometres southeast of Soms Island, Matiu Soms, so that's quite central to the harbour. We deliberately selected the site to capture the influence of the river flow plume into the harbour. From our perspective, getting that type of information is really important and really valuable for us to draw those linkages between the, what's happening on the freshwater space and how that influences the coastal environment. So being in know, obviously a nearshore coastal area that's right on our doorstep and with the Hutt River being the single biggest freshwater inflow into the harbour, having an understanding of how the Hutt River water influences the harbour water was quite a key piece of information that we were really interested in understanding better. Claire says that computer modelling shows that fresh water from the Hutt River stays in the harbour for up to 9 to 10 days before it's flushed out. It does stay around for quite a few days and after that time obviously it's mixed and people forget about it but it's still quite interesting to know that it actually does take over a week for the what's been coming out of the Hutt River to actually end up in Cook Strait. Jo, tell me a bit more about the buoy. Is this something that sits just at the surface of the water? It's a big yellow triangle. It has solar panels around the outside so that it can power itself and then it has uh, wind sensors at the top, so these black sort of sticks and um, with a, it looks like an arrow and it spins around and it tells us how fast the wind's going and where it's coming from. And then underneath the surface, so we've got this yellow buoy at the surface and then below the surface we've got essentially a rope which has instruments that measure ocean properties, temperature, salinity, oxygen, turbidity. So turbidity is basically how muddy the water is? Yes, we'll all know what turbidity is. We all fly around in planes or look at how brown the water is at times and that's turbidity. Sometimes it's blue uh, when there's there's low turbidity and and sometimes it's brown. so. So what depths are these other instruments at? The data that Claire's talked about on the website is at the surface but we have instruments at 5 metres, 10 metres and then at the seabed. So is the water out in the harbour a uniform mass of water? Uh, No, there's layers in salinity mostly, but they also layers in temperature. There's layers in oxygen, and we've got a surface layer and a deeper layer. I mean, it's only 20 metres, but they are layers, and it's hard for you to move between the layers if you're, say, plankton. So understanding the timescales that these layers change is really important for thinking about how healthy the harbour is. So what are some of the key things you've been seeing over the past nine months? So prior to Rebo, there was another 
boy which we had out for testing and so that was out for 12 months so we actually have a, a bit over 12 months of data which is you know which is fantastic we get some seasonal picture of what's happening in Wellington Harbour and about this time last year we saw a number of cyclones that came through Wellington. Those 2017 ex-tropical cyclones were of course Debbie, Cook and then Donna. And so these large events have shown up in surface salinity. So we get the horrible winds and we get the rain and then that ultimately discharges out of the Hutt River into Wellington. And so normally the ocean salinity is about 35, but what we measured in the buoy was down to 10. So this is quite substantially fresher after a cyclone or an extropical cyclone. Which indicates a large amount of water coming down the Hutt River? It does, and... I don't have that information on hand, but we certainly know that anything up above the three times median flow, which in those events it definitely is, that's talking about the the Hutt River flow, definitely you can see the visible plume of the Hutt River extending across the whole harbour. And I definitely see that on my train trip each morning down the Petone foreshore coast into town when I get the train in. And, you know, by all accounts, on those big events from the Hutt River, it goes straight into Evans Bay as well. So we know that the the Hutt River water actually goes across the whole harbour, which probably a lot of people don't know. So having that information to really support that understanding is like a really, really quite key for us to actually be able to tell that story about how the Hutt River really behaves when it hits the coastal environment. This brown water that we, we can sometimes see, whether I'm on the train, I've sometimes seen it out when I'm out doing work on the buoy, we can see this brown water going past. It's really only a very thin layer, so this is why we have instruments at multiple depths. So the, the surface buoy is, is right in the middle of this plume, but we know that plumes are really only one to two to three metres thick, and they sit on the top as they flow out of, of Wellington Harbour or any other harbour around New Zealand. And there are a cap, this low salinity cap, on the ocean. So fresh water always sits on top of salt water, doesn't That's it? That's right, yeah. And then wind might mix it down in the water column. Uh, the tides move the, the river and the ocean back and forth and uh, continues to move out of the harbour. So Evans Bay is part of its pathway, but it also moves out through the channel and into Cook Strait. What's the impact of one of these events with... You know, the turbidity changes, the salinity changes, all of those things change. How long does that effect last for? The ocean has a longer memory than, than our memory. You know, we, the event passes and we were relieved that the weather's passed. But an event that might last, say, two or three days actually has a, a longer influence on Wellington Harbour, so of the order of two to three weeks. So that's because we've got this increase in fresh water at the surface and that changes the, the differences from top to bottom and that makes the flows in the harbour different. So an ex-tropical cyclone might drop your salinity down to about, what, you said 10? Oh, that's from right. From 35? What would it do just during an average run-of-the-mill winter? Just, you know, what's your variation going to be? A regular Wellington winter day. Um, so some of the data shows that it's, it's 20, so it's, it's certainly fresher than the ocean, but uh, not, not as extreme as what we see after cyclones. I guess the point is it varies a lot. You know, it's varying quite substantially over several days. It's constantly changing. So the turbidity changes significantly, the salinity changes. What happens to the temperature? We can certainly see temperature when the rivers are colder. We can, we can track that temperature signature out with the fresh water. Uh, so it really depends on if it's a cyclone that's come through in March or if it's a winter discharge. Now, one of the things that there's been a lot of talk about in the media this summer has been the marine heat wave out in the Tasman Sea. Have you seen any reflection of that here in Wellington Harbour? 
Uh, so the the boy showed us that at times it got up to twenty two degrees, which is which is perfect for swimming, but certainly warmer than we've recalled for Wellington Harbour temperatures. Uh, keep in mind though, the, the boy is the first time we've got a lot of long term monitoring. So you know, saying absolutely that it's warmer than usual is tricky because there isn't a, isn't any baseline data, which is the really neat thing about this collaboration. We're sort of building up a picture of how the harbour is now, how the harbour's responding to, you know, as we talk about rivers, but also what's going to happen in a changing climate. How much warmer will the harbour become? So 22 degrees, nice and warm. What about at the other end of the spectrum? What, how cold does it get in winter? <laughs> sure. Uh, so it's, uh, as you'd imagine, quite chilly out there. It's uh, 10 degrees in the middle of winter. So this looks like a great tool, but it is just one boy stuck in one place in Wellington Harbour, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But we, we needed to start somewhere, so it is, it is a starting point. <laughs> and it's the first time we've done it, so it made sense for us to stay close to home in that way because if something did go wrong and touch wood it won't, it's kind of on our doorstep. So if we need to rush out in a hurry or get an alert in the middle of the night, then hopefully nothing too drastic has gone wrong and it's, it's accessible for us. So if you think about the size of the Wellington region, we've got about close to 500 kilometres of coastline and a lot of that is pretty open and exposed and pretty logistically impossible to put any monitoring equipment out or let alone get an understanding of the, what's happening out in the water there. So for us it was made sense to sort of start off at a bite-sized chunk that we, we knew we could do and we knew we could manage and hopefully... If something goes wrong, and it probably will, um, that it's, it'll be manageable for us. Yes, it's only one point in the ocean. It can't be everywhere at all times, unfortunately. But it's a really nice tool, and if we put it together with the other tools that we have access to, we have computer models, we have satellite information, we have buoys in other parts of the country, we can think about how the whole coastal system works, you know, the land-sea interactions. And so it's, it's our piece in the puzzle. Uh, it's the baseline data that hasn't been available in Wellington Harbour before so that's you know that's a great step forward and it will help us establish this knowledge about how the harbour looks and how we need to think about it in the future. And also the harbour is just intimately connected to what else goes on in Cook Strait and the wider ocean beyond that. Absolutely. So we're seeing the river at Rebo, which is great, but it doesn't just stop because we stop measuring it. It keeps moving and it goes well out into the channel and also further afield into Cook Strait. Thanks, Joe. That was oceanographer Joe O'Callaghan at Niwa, and we also heard from coastal scientist Claire Conwell from Greater Wellington. You can find a link to the Wellington Harbour Boy data stream on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there, check out the photo of that parasitoid wasp, Lucius Malfoyi. A big shout-out to DOC this week for their successful eradication of introduced mice from subantarctic Antipodes Island. That's such good news for the island's invertebrates and snipe and small seabirds. And a quick update on last week's story about Takahe. Eighteen birds were moved from Fiordland to northwest Nelson earlier this week, and a further 12 will make the journey in a few weeks' time. If you missed that story, you can find it on our webpage. And while you're on the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz, check out our podcasts and series page. There's a new season of the New Zealand history podcast, Black Sheep, and many other great podcasts as well. If you'd like to get in touch, we are RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'm back next week, but for now it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance. 
Matewa.